Okay, the scriptural context is this. We are in the very last chapter of Matthew's gospel where Matthew offers his account of the resurrection of Jesus. There's the scene at the empty tomb as the stone is rolled away and an angel appears to the two Marys, followed by a meeting between Jesus and the women as they run to tell the other disciples. Then Matthew reports that there were rumors plotted and paid for by the priests and the elders that what actually happened is that Jesus' disciples came and stole his body away. And then in the last four verses, what was read for us just a moment ago, Jesus appears to his disciples on a mountain and gives to them what the church has called the Great Commission. It feels kind of intense and kind of abrupt because with little face time for the disciples with the risen Christ to process all that has happened up to this point, to settle into the idea and awareness and implications of Jesus' resurrection, suddenly there is this commission. And a commission is a big deal. It is, of course, in this sense of the word, ascending forth along with an instruction for action. When someone is commissioned, they are charged with a particular function, and usually it has within it an element of duty. This is your instruction. This is your duty. This is your assignment. And this assignment, this commission, is huge. It's not just remain faithful to what I taught you. It is much, much bigger than that. Make disciples of all nations. This is the assignment. And according to Matthew, it is given by Jesus and authorized by God. All authority in heaven and earth, on earth has been given to me are the words of Jesus in this text. Make disciples of all nations. And because it is clearly authorized and directly assigned, Christians ever since have been taking this commission seriously. But there have been problems. Across the course of history, in too many cases, the message, a message of God's good news, and the means of its delivery through force or oppression or even genocide have been contradictory. In other cases, the aims of the church, sharing the good news of Jesus, and the agenda of the state, often an agenda of gaining wealth and power, have been inappropriately combined. And so the integrity and the honesty of the good news has been undermined. And yet in other cases, Western culture has been presented as the same thing as Christian faith. And one has to wonder whether the word make has, at least in part, been at the root of these problems. Because instead of simply sharing something good, which to my ear suggests not only gentleness and generosity, but also respect, our cultural understanding and practice in relation to the idea of making something almost always has something to do with exerting our will through force. That's not to say that all making is bad. Of course not. 
there is a sense in which to make something is to participate in a creative process or to at least fulfill a responsibility. We make a decision, we make a product, we make dinner, we even make a promise. But if you think about how we most commonly understand making, it is most often an effort to reshape something that we want to change. To make something is to exert our power, our influence, is to move something from what it was to what we think it should be. And this is especially true when the word make is associated with our interactions with other people. In those cases, the likelihood that we are talking about some kind of force being exerted is high. I want to make you see my point of view. I'm going to make you believe. I make you clean up your mess. I make you listen to me or pay attention to me. I'm going to make you change your mind. I will try to make you agree with me. Those are all examples of how we exert force to attempt to change another. Would we want to add to the list, make disciples? It seems to do so would be not only morally questionable, but just downright ineffective. In other words, if you have enough power, if you have enough influence over my life, you might be able to make me sit and listen to you. You may make me clean up a mess, or you might be able to make me do something I didn't already intend to do, but can you make me believe something? Accept something? Adopt something? Can you make me a disciple? Probably not. Not any more than you can make me love you or make me respect you or make me want to be in a relationship with you. So making disciples has to mean something other than exerting influence over other peoples or other cultures. It has to mean something other than demanding a hearing. It has to mean something other than delivering a product or demanding a response. Candler School of Theology preaching professor Thomas Long in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel has this to say. This is no hit-and-run evangelism. What the disciples are sent to do is not to hurl gospel leaflets into the wind or to hold a rally at a stadium. They are called to the harder, less glamorous, more patient task of making disciples, of building Christian communities. A disciple, of course, is a student, and the task before the church is helping others to become good students of God's will. Long says that a disciple, of course, is a student. I thought that was an interesting statement because I've more often thought of a disciple as a follower, as in Jesus' disciples were the ones he called to follow. But Long is right. The Greek New Testament word that we translate as disciple in this and other passages actually means taught or trained one. So making disciples means to teach and train people in ways, in the ways of God. Still a daunting assignment, but at least one that feels less forceful and more fulfilling.
couple of weeks ago, after a tenure of 13 years, that is 13 season, I resigned my position as one of the boys' high school soccer coaches. It was a really hard thing to do because it's been such an important piece of not only my work in this community and my community identity, but it's been such a source of joy and fulfillment. When I went into the high school building to tell my friend and fellow coach Dave McKee of my decision, I felt a strong surge of emotion. It was hard to get the words out. But we got the conversation going and it moved quickly to words of mutual appreciation and then on to reminiscing, kind of our own shared highlight reel of favorite soccer moments. And as we talked, I recognized that a significant part of what is hard to give up is the knowledge that there won't be any more of those moments. But even more difficult to give up is the experience of getting to teach something I really enjoy. Yes, I've enjoyed the strategizing, the figuring out how to make the most of the personnel we have, the standing in judgment of all the poor refereeing that we've suffered through, the drama of a contest, and of course the winning more than the losing, but maybe the thing that's been most fulfilling is figuring out how to teach and encourage each player. And it hasn't been one size fits all. Those of you who are teachers know that well. Some needed to learn certain skills and I could show them. Some needed to learn about being aware of the people around them. Some needed to learn how to trust. Some needed to be taught to take the success of the team more seriously and their own starring role less seriously. Some needed to learn how to play within their own abilities or to be more adventurous on the field or to control their temper. Some needed to learn to just have fun. And all this was true not just on an individual basis, but entire teams had lessons to learn. All of that is to say that making soccer players wasn't so much about giving them orders or directing them here and there as it was about teaching them how to be part of a team, to be a team. Trust each other, support each other, wish each other success, complement instead of compete with each other, pass to each other, cover for each other, respect each other, that is, be in good relationship with each other. I wanted to teach them to be in good relationship with each other, to be a beloved community, if you will. Thomas Long says something similar about the instruction from Jesus to the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a ritual, but a ritual for a reason, and that reason is relationship. After pointing out that the Trinitarian baptismal formula is probably included in this scriptural context, because evidently not all of the early Christian communities baptized in the name of the Trinity, including Peter on the day of Pentecost. And this may be evidence that likely Matthew's community had developed or adopted this formula for their own baptismal liturgy. Therefore, Matthew, in writing these ending verses to the gospel, was probably trying to 
read back this feature of worship into Jesus' words to the disciples, after pointing all of this out, Long says this, but there is more meaning in the Trinitarian formula than simply the fact that Matthew's church may have used these words in their own worship. In Matthew's time, the church had not yet worked out the sophisticated and logical doctrines of the Trinity. These would come later in church history. For Matthew, Father, Son, Holy Spirit language was looser, more descriptive of the kind of intimate and loving relationships that existed among Father, Son, and Spirit. He continues, notice what happened at Jesus' own baptism. There the Spirit descends like a dove to light tenderly on Jesus, and God speaks a word of parental blessing. This is my Son, the Beloved. This is no cold mathematical trinity. This is a divine family, full of gentleness and blessing. In baptism, we are brought into a family, Long concludes. To become Christian is not to be converted to an ideology. It is to be drawn into kinship with God and with all those who love God. So even baptism becomes a teachable moment in the task of making disciples. What the person being baptized learns is more than a formula. They learn this important truth. You too are the beloved of God. God operates in relationship. We are kin. These are things to be taught and learned on the path toward discipleship. And then continuing in the vein of disciples being those who are taught and trained, there is this part. The first disciples are commissioned by Jesus to make more disciples by teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That is, baptize them into relationship in the family of God, teach them that they are loved, that they are kin, but also teach them what that means in terms of living. You are loved by God, so how should you live for God? The answer is living in obedience to Christ's commands, but what exactly does Jesus mean when he says, everything I have commanded you? Well, as long as we're already in Matthew's gospel, I'm going to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and look at the commands in Matthew 5 and 6. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Give your alms and offer your prayers in secret. Do not store up treasures on earth. Do not worry. Do not judge. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Those are all in the list of commands. And then as long as we're still looking, I'm going to go to Matthew 25. Care for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. And I'm going to Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Make disciples of all nations, yes, but there's no arm twisting. There's only love. Think about it. 
We all know that any teaching about anything does not work by force. Rather, effective teaching requires understanding your audience. It requires patience and compassion and commitment. And the best teachers not only love their subject, but they love their students. So fulfilling the Great Commission to make disciples isn't something we're going to do to others. It has to be about what we share with others, what we teach to others. And I might even say this, that the shape of that sharing, that teaching, isn't going to be about delivering cold, hard truth. No, we are going to have to love others into discipleship, love them into a renewed relationship with God who already loves them and us. The Great Commission is a call to witness to the truth, the truth of Jesus' life and teachings and instructions and expectations and example, but making that witness as a teacher would, one who teaches with determination but also compassion, and then letting the Spirit do its work. Your assignment as a disciple of Christ, our assignment as disciples of Christ, to love as Christ loved and by doing so to convert the world to the ways of God. Is this evangelism? Yes. Yes, it is. Because evangelism is quite literally sharing the good news. And the good news is this, that through Christ, God calls us and God empowers us and God transforms us. Reconciled to God, healed by God, we can become agents of love and justice of peace and reconciliation, of change and hope in this hurting world. God wants more and more and more of us to be the faithful and faith-filled family of God, a family committed to a love that changes the world. Amen.